0: Obviously, the the Nirvana is you have high EQ, and you can use your hands, and you can use your brain, your cognitive part of your brain, and you can deploy all three. And that really is like the the triple threat weapon of, of a of a truly successful dentist.
1: Welcome to the Protrusive Dental Podcast, the forward-thinking podcast for dental professionals. Join us as we discuss hot topics in dentistry, clinical tips, continuing education, and adding value to your life and career with your host, Jazz Gulati. Throughout my career so far, I've really tried to stand on the shoulders of giants and I've tried to learn from my mentors, learn from people who've got significantly more experience and people and dentists who are successful, quote unquote successful. Now what does that actually mean and what do they actually say? Well we'll get to what that means a bit later but all these dentists when I ask what makes a great dentist, they all say the following things. They say empathy they say communication skills, they say soft skills, they say the ability to explain to patients in a in a a way that they can understand it and the ability to build fantastic rapport with your patients and, and all these sorts of things basically. So it's very much the soft skills. Now, if I was to summarize all these things in two words, it would be emotional intelligence. And that's what this episode is all about. We're gonna talk about how to be successful not only in dentistry, but in life. Because I think what I truly believe from reading more and more and more and listening to people is that it's emotional intelligence, which is actually far more important than your IQ. So I've got someone awesome to talk on this topic with me today is Dr. Richard Porter, who so many of you asked to come on the podcast back when uh, some episodes ago I, I asked who you guys wanted to come on the podcast and so many of you have, had messaged me on Instagram to say you wanted Dr. Richard Porter so we've got Dr. Richard Porter on today and I won't take too much of your time I'm just gonna give you the protrusive dental pearl and we'll go straight to what hopefully will be a really impactful and dare I say life-changing episode for you the Protrusive Dental Pearl I have for you is a, is, is a lesson that I learned as a dental student and recently speaking to someone who's recently qualified has resurfaced as like a lesson that I've sort of almost almost rekindled with in a way. So so it's so a lesson I learned as a dental student. Um, I was there treating a lower premolar as a dental student and that, you know how every stage you, you get it checked by your tutor. Now my tutor was Dr. Abs Elmugi uh, who is now a I think he's a restorative specialist by now. Actually, uh, his story is quite cool. Actually, he did 11 years as a GDP. Uh, I hope I'm getting this right abs. Uh, he did 11 years at GDP. And then he applied for his specialist specialist registrar training in restorative dentistry. And he got the place. And while I was doing my DCT in Sheffield, he was then a registrar in restorative dentistry. But anyway. In his days as a tutor uh, on the restorative dentistry sort of floor as we're like fourth year students, I was treating this heavily carious lower premolar uh, and typically students and, and young dentists, a mistake that we'd make is that we spend too much in caries removal, like, you know, it should be a fast thing, we should be very precise, we should know where our foot pedal is, we should know where our, we should have good handpiece control, and we should be able to remove caries quite quickly now. But as a student, uh, definitely at that point, it was like, you know, you remove a bit, and then you reflect and you think, Oh, should I remove some more? Should I should I do a little bit more here? Um, should I stop and show my tutor? And then of course, you got to wait about half an hour until the tutor comes around, right? <laughs> Anyway, so I had this uh, tooth, which is heavily carious. And there I am removing caries. And every sort of few minutes, I- I'd show Dr. El like Dr. El have I removed enough caries? Um, have I done enough here? And, and really, at the end of that session once I placed my uh, restoration and it turns out that tooth needed a root canal and it needed to, be, needed to be done by a specialist because it had a split inside. So some lower premolars they have a split inside the canal so really it's, it's in the realm of special, uh, specialists especially at that point. So uh, it was referred to the specialist unit but the feedback that I got was amazing. The feedback that I got from Dr El Mugi which I'll never forget is "Don't don't be shy with a tooth of poor prognosis so that's don't be shy with a tooth of poor prognosis. And it's exactly the conversation I was having with, with a colleague who, who listens to podcasts, Neil, hi Neil, I hope you're listening uh, and uh, I hope you don't mind me mentioning, I won't mention your surname. Uh, and, and Neil was sent me a case of an upper central incisor which was pretty much kaput, like it was a trauma case, the palatal um, fragment was loose, it was completely unrestorable, right? Uh, and he was telling me like, what should I do? Should I refer it for a specialist? Should I try and do the endo uh, while we sort of bury it? As we sort of came to cl- conclusion and, and I and I borrowed some knowledge from Dr. Robertetti, implant dentist, about how we should handle this situation. Uh, and what we went for was to to do a root canal, bury the uh, the tooth because she's twenty, she's a little bit on the young side for an implant, and get five years or so from a resin bond bridge. So we talked about doing an immediate resin bond bridge, right? But that tooth was a tooth of poor prognosis, hopeless prognosis. And the lesson I wanted to pass on to him was exactly what I learned from Dr. Mugi. And that is don't be shy with a tooth of poor prognosis. I mean, what can go wrong? The tooth is kaput already. So um, I told him, look, do the root canal, explain to the patient that The tooth is hopeless. And the secondary lesson from that is something I've mentioned before on many episodes. Never make the patient's problem your problem, right? Sometimes we stress more uh, and we take that sort of burden and anxiety on us but really the problem is very unfortunately due to trauma the patient's problem and you need to dissociate yourself from it and and, and become someone who's there to help them. So so the, the main pearl here is don't be shy with a tooth of poor prognosis. Tell your patient if a tooth is very poor or hopeless prognosis and just go for it. Don't be shy with a tooth of poor prognosis. So I hope you enjoy that and uh, really excited to, to, to sort of present this episode to you about emotional intelligence, how to succeed. I've given it quite an ambitious title because really I do believe this is the most important thing in your career and in your life. So let's join Dr. Richard Porter to learn all about emotional intelligence. Richard Porter, thank you so much for coming on the Protrusive Gender Podcast. It's an absolute honor to have you on.
0: That's very kind of you my man an uh, honor I don't deserve but it's great no, to be No
1: no 100% around. do in in my journey so far um I, I, I don't like I said I don't know how much of the podcast you've uh, tuned into before in terms of Lots. my my story and my background but yeah. certainly you were a huge and you still are of course a, a massive inspiration uh, to, to me in my journey from about third BDS when I started reading some of your literature then your blogs then I then I, I used to follow your Twitter account and I saw you set up Aspire and I was so so close to, to, to actually joining Aspire but because at the time in my journey I was uh, doing other things like I was doing a dental core training post in restorative yeah. so I yeah. wasn't in the right place for that but certainly it's, it's absolute, uh, absolutely amazing that I have you on today
0: well it's very kind of you mate that's very kind and you know everyone comes to their learning stage when, it, when it's the right time for them so uh... So yeah, well that's very very kind, and I'm glad I've played some small role in the great things you're doing. So and um, great no, to, it's ma- great ma- massive
1: role, and I'm not just saying that. It's it's been great, and a lot of people, you know, when I, when I around about episode seven or eight, I started to say to the listeners, "Who do you want on the podcast next?" Literally, I can, you know, I have to tr- st- stroll through all my messages, and a number of people that said, "We want Richard Porter, we want Richard Porter." So I'm, you know, it's it's and all these people well, now. I, I have be, to thank all my
0: extended. All my extended family for, for <laughs> pretending to be dentists and putting those numbers in. So that's nice. No, of no. That,
1: that's no word of lie. Honestly, lots of people wanted okay. you on, and I, I can see why. I mean, uh, the first time I saw you speak live was you were doing a, and you won't remember this at all. You, you were, I think you were just starting up Aspire at the time, and you were doing a lecture about occlusion. Uh, okay. and, I, and, and I don't know where it was. I feel like it was Watford or something like that. It was, it was somewhere in London. It was one of those Section 63 type uh, yeah, BDA type you know, meetings.
0: I do remember up in North London. Yeah. I think it might have been, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was. Yeah, in a hotel.
1: Yeah, yeah, okay. So I do remember. Okay, there we are. Then that was many years ago now, and I remember you uh, seeing you speak first time there, and uh, your charisma was just uh, amazing. Your energy as a speaker, as an educator, was amazing. So to the the topic we're going to speak about today goes very yeah. much hand in hand in that, and that's emotional intelligence uh, applied to dentistry. So before we get into yeah. that, can you? I mean, I've done a little mini intro about you know how much uh, of an inspiration you've been to me, but just tell the people out there watching, listening, a little bit about yourself. Uh,
0: well, um, so. I I sort of fell into dentistry as as like a, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And, you know, like a lot of people, I was influenced by my parents. And um, it's a bit cliche, but, you know, you're given the choice by your parents of whatever you could be. And it was dentistry or medicine, you know, and um, uh, maybe pharmacy or something like that. And so I rebelled as much as I could. I fell into dentistry. I found it interesting academically at first. And then I got really despondent through dental school. Um, I found it, it was almost like a hazing uh, initiation, you know, and that it was, I didn't find it inspiring. I didn't find my teachers inspiring and, and I didn't have a sense of purpose. Um, I recognized I was good to patience. And I say that with, I say all of this with due humility. Uh, you know, I really do mean that, but I recognize I was good with patience. Um, but I was at guys. And when you're at guys at the time you were told, you know, you're a guys boy, don't worry about it. The world's your oyster now. <laughs> and I got into practice and I had, uh, I had not a Time, but I felt like a fraud, a total fraud. So I went back and just thought, well, why, why would anyone ever come and see me for dentistry if I'm not the best person in that town or wherever I was? So I did a lot of additional training, and I was blessed. I, I genuinely, luck played a big role in it. I met the right people at the right time. And it's where I got loads and loads of hands-on training, um, and I became a consultant in restorative dentistry. And I was lucky that I got on a few specialist lists. Um, and then I wanted to start plugging some of the gaps I saw, and perhaps the ones I experienced and started doing lots and lots and lots of teaching. And that's what I spend a lot of my time now doing. And I find the more we can understand each other's minds, the more productive I can make that teaching.
1: Amazing. So that's what we are. Yeah, brilliant. Well, two things I want to pick on, on, your, on your journey, on your story, on your background. Uh, one yeah. is that uh, I'd read on a blog post you wrote once, uh, very vividly, and it just shows how much, you know, I, I, I look up to you. I, I was reading about this judo champion or thereabouts that you used to treat, or karate champion, yeah. and then you, you did a molorendo or something like that, and then he had yeah. paid and how bad you felt, and that yeah. was a,
0: a spark in your career. It was, it, was, it, was, it was a massive spark, actually. He was a really nice guy. And, uh, I mean, it's a genuine story and this is jazz. I'm a bit older than you. So, but, so if you look at the UFC now, uh, you know, it's weight regulated and, and there's lots of safety. And when it first started, it was, it was far less so. So, so someone who weighs 50 kilos might be fighting someone who's 120 kilos and these guys were just getting the octagon and do whatever the hell they wanted to each other. And nobody knew what the best form of martial arts was, you know, Brazilian jiu-jitsu with some striking seems to win it now, but at the time, nobody. and this, this guy was the British champion. And I exposed on his lower right six uh, carious exposure because he had decay. Um, and he was a lovely, gentle man, thank God. And um, I started doing endo on it. And, you know, you're a guy's boy. Uh, you'll be able to do endo. And I <laughs> was, by, by any definition, I hope I do get into trouble for saying this, I was, I was incompetent. I was incompetent. And a week later, he was in the John Radcliffe Hospital with a big fat face. And he had to pull out of the tournament, the UFC tournament that he qualified as the only British contestant. And that was his big chance. He was at the top of his game. And my lack of competence led to his, uh, perhaps stifling of his career even. I don't know. And, and that for me is, is something I'll never forget. So why, why would someone come see me for dentistry if that's what I've got to offer? And that was, I, I was either going to get good or get out. It, was, it was, there was, you know, there was nothing in the middle. So I, I, I you know, that's really sparked me on.
1: Well, um, I, I hope you don't mind that I mentioned this no, because no, not that, at all. That, that, that story just reading that story as I don't know if I was a student or in DF at the time just reading that story was really a, a breath of fresh air that someone is so kind to share a failure uh, in, in that way and and to from that failure something good came out of it. It, it, was, it became a driving force in your career. So just for those uh, young dentists out there who, who weren't familiar with that aspect of your story, that's why I wanted to mention it because it inspired me so much. And I'm sure people out there will think, wow, you know, uh, what an adverse event and how it led to something good.
0: Well, do you know, uh, Chaz, And I, th- I think it's a little legacy, which I hadn't thought about till you bring it up. But the most, we, we do try and assess our educational delivery. Like, you know, there's all well and good us, me and Raheel, who I work with, Thinking when we teach that it's all going well, but you have to assess it. You know, or get someone to objectively assess it. And the videos we show of clinical procedures, the best ones that people get the most out of is when we cock it all up. So, so if if you know, I show uh, me putting on some veneers years ago, and the etch goes everywhere, and you know, you're struggling with the rubber dam control, and uh, you splint the teeth together, and actually seeing those mistakes and talking them through and how you overcome them is more educationally valid than anything else. If you just watch a perfect procedure, you don't see where the flaws are. Uh, there's this mm-hmm. famous quote, which no battle plan survives first contact with the enemy. So if you learn a procedure A, B, C, all the way up to Z, as soon as you deploy on a patient, there are subsets. There's nuance and things you haven't thought of. And so seeing those things that other people haven't thought of, I think, is educationally valid. So we'll probably remain eternal students for the rest of our lives, hopefully.
1: Absolutely. And the other thing I want to pick from your story uh, was you mentioned luck in being a factor. Now, let's just touch on that. How much of that do you actually believe? Because I've got two two belief systems when it comes to to, to luck. So, uh, cause because when you look at like Malcolm Gladwell's work on on circumstances yeah. and, and that sort yeah. of stuff, but then also there's the harder I work, the luckier I get. So tell us about, because pe- people who listen to this podcast are very much into, uh, okay, where do I go next in my career? And sa- same to people who, who do, you know, listen, to, read your fantastic blogs that you write. They're very much thinking in that, uh, you know, where to take the, how to get a fulfillment from my career. So you, when you mention luck, can you just tell us what you believe The role of luck is?
0: Yeah. Yeah, I can. Um, I mean, it's quite a big subject. We could, we could talk all day just about that. The, the, so I broadly speaking from a neuroscience point of view and an emotional intelligence point of view and a sort of life goals point of view, luck is probably about a third of everything that happens to you. Now you talk about the harder I work, the more luck I have. The harder you work is a choice. So choices you make are another third. So we 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 have natural abilities and things like that, and our emotional intelligence. But then you have choices, and you have luck. And you are lucky to be born. For example, if you're if you're born in the UK, you're incredibly lucky. If you're born in the UK with good health and with parents who demonstrate that you are loved. If you look at the the longest running um, scientific study in the history of humanity. Is the Harvard Happiness Study, which is now you know coming up for its centenary. It's, it's just unbelievably uh, important study that started um, uh, in in the states and cross matched different groups of guys and follow them up for years and years and watch what happened to them. And for them, the, one of the biggest rate determining steps was that they believed they were loved by their parents. So if you were born with parents who demonstrate they love you, it's unbelievably lucky. You know that's unbelievably good news for you. And uh, so I had that. You know I had, I had a wonderful childhood. Um, We also know now that that you and I sitting here, maybe maybe we'll squeeze into each other's frame here, but you're the sum total of the five people who influence you the most and you spend the most time with.
1: Are you enjoying the Protrusive Dental Podcast? Well, allow me to deliver you even more value. You can now download the iOS or Play Store app for free. Just search Protrusive on your app platform. Now, if you're a true protruserati, and you want to support the podcast, you want to claim CPD for all the listening and watching that you do, you want to get access to exclusive clinical walkthrough videos to make dentistry tangible, as well as a premium newsletter, access to the Protrusive Vault, and the ability to download all the clinical videos and podcast videos. So you can view them offline later. You can get all of that for less than 15 tax deductible dollars per month. So what are you waiting for? Download the Protrusive app now on iOS or Android for absolutely nothing. We worked so hard on this Protrusive team and I know you're just going to love it. Now back to the main episode.
0: And uh, I, when I was coming to the latter part of my undergraduate career, had some people around me, two or three people in particular, who I hadn't anticipated would be so inspirational, but they were. And These are dentists who are now GDPs. They're still friends of mine. Um, but no one's ever heard of them, but they, they have got it going on and they're just, you know, super smart and were courageous enough to say, Rich, look, you've got some abilities here. Why the hell are you doing that? Correct my, my flaws. Hopefully I could do the same back to them. And, and I, I was lucky. And I look back at that and I think that's just luck. You know, they weren't there. They'd be born two months later in a different year or something. I wouldn't have come across them. Who knows? So I, I think luck's a big part of it and I'm grateful.
1: Yeah, and I I I love these sort of stories, and and I'm I'm very much subscribed, and I agree with you that I did a a webinar for for the deanery uh, in I forget which it was a Wessex deanery, and I called it the butterfly effect because I do believe when you were born and to whom you are born with, and then the small decisions you make early on, and how it it can have uh, vast changes in your career trajectory later on, but none more so, and none as big as the whole theme of emotional intelligence.
0: Yeah, well, and and but that, that does start before you're four years old. You know so, so, a lot of your social networking as an adult is influenced by years not to four. And mm-hmm. so parents have a lot of responsibility on their shoulders. um but but you're right, and emotional intelligence is you know it's a relatively new area of science, I, I guess we'd call it science, um with a, a rapidly evolving body of work. Um, you know it really is huge. it's it's you almost get a bit of foMO because it's almost impossible to keep up with stuff as it comes out. um but nevertheless, it's fascinating um we we introduced that into our um syllabus just because you know as you already know i believe it is as important as anything else in dentistry and i think dentists are frontline
1: Brilliant. Well, we can uh, before we just touch on I'm gonna ask you very yeah. straight up, you know, what is emotional yeah. intelligence? Before I do that, you just touched on something that's again, very interesting about how between, you know, age uh, four, and how uh, yeah. it is so important in our development to to have emotional intelligence. And, and we can see yeah. evidence of that from the early age. I I don't know, I can't quote which study it was, but from a lot a lot of stuff that I read in this sort of flavor, mm. your personality at age three, and then your personality—it was either age eighteen or twenty-one. Like it's amazing the the correlation that you that, that those two have. Well, particularly particularly,
0: um, I mean, this will make a lot more sense when we get into talk about AI. But um, it's particularly your social network. So, mm-hmm. so my my area of interest now, and probably will be the rest of my career, is is the neuroscience. Like, which bits of your brain give you what, and how can we influence our own brains, and and what can we do with it? And we, we know we can do that. But if you think of a two-year-old, you know, two-year-old, the terrible twos is called the terrible twos for a reason. And two-year-olds behave almost psychotically. You know, they my my two-year-old kids would hit their mum without fear of consequence, and they're just testing everything because they, uh, you know, they haven't learned, they haven't had any neuroplasticity. But at four, they hopefully don't because they've they've had that that nurturing experience and learned where their barriers are, and that will often that that really does translate through your teenage years. And we're really still neuroplastic at that stage. That said, when you get to adulthood, you can um, develop, you can develop your personality. And it's really important, um, if we're going to mention that at this stage, that we're clear that this isn't a threat. It is not a threat to who you are. It's not a threat to your sense of being or your sense of identity. It is just you upgrading the version of you that you are. And I guess when you're an adult, it becomes the responsibility of you because your parents probably can't help you anymore. Uh, maybe they can, but 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 you know, it's certainly the the, the crown is on your shoulder, the, the weight is on your shoulders there.
1: Brilliant. Well, I couldn't help but just mention that sort of uh, some of the studies I had read about that. So if you just yeah. dive in now, what is uh, emotional intelligence, Richard, uh, and why is it so important? Um,
0: so I I don't want to go on all day and bore you too much jazz on, on what it is, but there's, so, you know, there's the scientific way of describing it. And then there is, um, a, probably a more nuanced and almost dental way of describing it. So, so if you were to look at, um, what the scientists say, it starts with self-awareness. So I'm feeling perhaps slightly anxious and coming onto a podcast, having a chat with someone. I don't know how many people are watching me. But, but I experience those emotions and I'm aware of it. and I'm aware of kind of what I'm like. And I think about that. And then I have self-regulation. So let's say you would say something that upsets me. Um, I can experience those emotions. Uh, that, so that's, that's absolutely fine. But it's then what I do with those emotions. So that's self-regulation. And the third part to it is uh, social awareness. So that means if I upset you, you know, have I recognized that? Am I, am I aware of it? And then the fourth part, the final part, is social relationships. So those are the four sort of scientific bits to it. I tend to think of it in dental terms, and perhaps more social terms. In that we now know from there's a there's a great um, researcher in this area, a guy called Daniel Goldman, who wrote one of the first books on this. It's quite heavy reading, but the bottom line is when two people, even like right now, buddy, when two people interact. So you and your patient, you and your nurse, you with a group of 10, you're teaching, whatever. When you interact, there is an exchange of energy. And that exchange of energy, you could call one jazz. So you're teaching 10 people and you give them one unit of jazz. And that to them, depending on your emotional intelligence, would feel, let's say I'm mm-hmm. one of those delegates, like one and a half Richard Porter. So I've walked in with plateau Richard Porter sitting at baseline zero and now, because of the way you taught me, because of the way you interact with me, I've got one and a half. You could have been teaching me about potatoes. I love you for that energy. I have more energy than I have. And if you have high emotional intelligence, which you do, by the way, then you will find <laughs> it easy to deploy that energy into me. Now, if you change that situation, so let's say you wanted to, to, to take my energy, you'd also have... That agency, you'd be you'd have enough utility to do that mm-hmm. as well. And so whenever you have that situation, if two people have a high energy exchange rate, so let's say I talk to you, and when I talk with one Richard Porter, it feels like four jazzes, you're gonna love me because mm-hmm. we give net positive. And for the people out there listening, when you look forward to seeing someone, when you think, Oh, I'm seeing Jazz this the weekend, you know, I can't wait. It's because you know you're just gonna be yourself authentically. And you give each other energy. So when you and you just like each other, and you try and reschedule appointments. When you and I go through our day list, I hope we're allowed to be unprofessional slightly. And you look at that name of that patient, and you think, Oh my god! You know, it's Lots rarely about the dentistry. It is. It is normally that you think I have to put so much emotional energy into this patient. They give me nothing back, so mm. they leave positive. They just suck it all out, and your exchange rate might be awful. Like you give them a hundred, and you know, they act like you've given them one, one and a half and they give you nothing back and you're exhausted. So emotional energy is a real thing. It's like physical energy or mental energy. It's a real thing. And we exchange it all the time with people we meet and having high emotional intelligence gives you power to, um, give a tiny bit if you need to, but it feels like a lot to other people. And that's, what's important for dentists. That's what we train them to do is that they can have See a really difficult patient, and you have to give energy because as dentists, we have to give energy to every single patient. But when we do that, it doesn't cost us too much, and they leave feeling positive.
1: I've never heard of it in terms of this numbers exchange, and I can really—it's a—it's a a great analogy. It's a great way to explain it. I think it's fantastic. The other—the other uh, way I like to think of it, uh, this area of emotional intelligence is. Knowing, and maybe maybe I'm wrong, maybe I've, uh, you know, crossed my wires here and you can, you can tell me, I think I feel like you are definitely uh, more read up on this than I am, but it's knowing what to say, when to say it, to whom to say it, how yeah. to say it, and making sure it comes all out effectively. Is that a... a 100% you know, well, that
0: definition. Yeah, you're you, you're you're a you're a long way down the line there. Um, but but you're you're 100% correct, Jess. That's definitely part of the process. So if you if you can develop enough emotional intelligence, that means that almost no matter what comes at you, because we do face hostility, and and the dental environment is a crucible. You know, it's it's a real crucible for emotional intelligence. Um, but that means that if you uh have high emotional intelligence, when positives or negatives come at you, you can contextually, contextually respond authentically. Uh, and that means that you do know what to say in the right tone of voice. And you almost know what to say before the patient's even said anything. So emotional intelligence is a spectrum. And there is a condition for people who have almost absolutely none. And I will try and pronounce it. It's alexith- alexithemia. And okay. those people have, have almost none. So they are unaware of other people's emotions. Um, and you know, I, I, I have colleagues who, who I work with and they say, how did you know to say that? And this isn't trying to be irritating. It might sound irritating, but I expect you'll get where I come from. If, if, if you have a, a great deal of social awareness, you can feel other people's emotions. Like I can feel the sun on my skin. It's just there. And that means you can contextualize your response and you know how to respond. Um, so, the, that's uh, one end of the spectrum. Right at the very end of the spectrum is, is, well, we don't know. We don't know where it ends, because that path of self-development is never-ending. But we know the guy that took it the furthest, and is, again, if people ever want to look this guy up, a guy called Milton Erickson, who, who was uh, bedridden with polio as a teenager and expected to not survive you know, many, many years ago, and he was essentially um, cast into, unbidden, seven years of bedridden study. And his family had a big family, a loving mum and dad and seven sisters. And they just socially interacted with every magical, beautiful facet of their lives in front of him as if he wasn't there. And all he did was watch and study and watch and study. And he never fully recovered from his polio. But when he did recover enough to become a teacher and was, he always walked with a, an aid, But when he, what he, he, his emotional intelligence was like no one, no one you can believe. And the the stories about what he was capable of, which you can, you know, you can look up there, they're scientifically published, are staggering. And I don't think any of us will get there because we can't do seven years study in a bed.
1: Yeah, yeah. I I, I definitely will look that up. Absolutely. That's great. And so, why is uh, emotional intelligence more important than so? um, Emotional intelligence, if you were to give it a um, measure, an individual, a bit like IQ, I believe they call it EQ, uh, emotional uh, quotient. So um, how important is IQ to to you? And how important is EQ? Uh,
0: So, I mean, IQ, IQ is obviously vitally important, and you don't get into, you know, uh, STEM fields and and the type of um, studies that we all have to do without a, a reasonable working IQ. And IQ has been shown against to be one of the biggest mobilizing factors if you come from any disadvantaged background, your IQ is a huge feather in your bow. You definitely want high IQ. Um, EQ goes almost hand in hand with it. So I'm not convinced it's more important. I think we probably all know anecdotally, uh, particularly dentists who are really, really good at talking with patients. Patients adore them and they get away with doing, if I'm allowed to say it, if they wish, poor quality dentistry. And certainly I know many situations like that Obviously, the, the nirvana is that you have high EQ and you can use your hands and you can use your brain, your cognitive part of your brain, and you can deploy all three. And that really is like the, the triple threat weapon of, of, a, of a truly successful dentist. The, the converse of it is I know dentists who, you know, super, super bright, uh, PhD level bright, um, can think through any problem, analyze problems absolutely beautifully, but just really struggle. With face-to-face relationships, um, I, you know, if, if you don't mind expanding, Jazz, just for a second, just please. It, please. It, there's a great example in that uh, in the middle of COVID, I was looking at one of the Royal college um, webinars, and they had a hero of mine, Henry Marsh, who's a, a St. George's Hospital, like me, a St. George's Hospital retired neurosurgeon, very famous guy and written a couple of great books. And he was talking about consent, and he said, "How can I consent someone?" To on the, the nuance of neurosurgically resecting a glioblastoma from a part of their brain. He said, you, you can't. You need to have his knowledge. He said, So it took him perhaps 30 or 40 years, but consent came down to the, the person sitting opposite him saying, Do I trust this guy? Do mm. I trust him? And trust comes from your emotional intelligence, you know, particularly for dentists. Um, we now know that you are judged within the first fifteen seconds, and actually those first impressions of how you behave. Um, there are two things we know patients are looking for: warmth and competence. It's just those two. Those are the two things: warmth and competence, and that comes from great research in Harvard. And as dentists, that you know the warmth side of it. Certainly, your competence might be your certificates on the wall, or it might be pictures of your. Your stained composites, you know, all <laughs> over social media or whatever it is, um, or you know, your Instagram feed. But your warmth is your emotional intelligence, and so it's at least fifty percent. It's at least fifty percent, um, and it gives you ability to succeed with people. And by succeeding with people, I don't mean um, coercing them or influencing them into um, anything that you want, not following your own desires, but if you think of how people interact as a relationship so you and i a few weeks ago were relative strangers and there's no doubt that relationship has upgraded you Absolutely. know and and perhaps it will even more and then you get into the point where i would describe the Nirvana of that as a relationship now ideally that takes a little while to do and you spend more time with people dentists you know you've got to get that trust on board sharp and the patient's already anxious when they walk in, and they're already judging you. So getting that across, we, we know for dentists, higher emotional intelligence equals higher income, and less stress, less litigation. You know, that's, that's overwhelmingly demonstrable. Uh, patients don't sue dentists they like. They just don't do it. Even if you muck things up, they don't sue dentists they like. They sue dentists they feel emotionally betrayed by or emotionally let down by. So, so I, I can't give it enough emphasis.
1: Well, then leading on to that, the people who are listening and watching right now, they're thinking, okay, so emotional intelligence is incredibly important in what we do day in, day out. Can we, so for example, to improve one's IQ, you know, there's theories about that, but let's talk about the EQ or the emotional intelligence. Yeah. Are you, is this something that you're born with and, and that's it? Or can you actually work to improve it? And if so, if I'm a dentist listening to this right now, and, I've, and I'm listening and I think, actually, you know what, I could probably be a better communicator. I could probably yeah. uh, come across as uh, showing more warmth to my patients. How do I improve my emotional intelligence? Yeah,
0: So uh, it's such a good question, Charles. I love that question. And uh, I don't have a simple answer, but I will try and get into as much facet of that as I possibly can. So you are born the way you're born, but then we have the nature versus nurture uh, uh, argument, and you become the person you become, and you are then um, set with your personality, and that's who you are, and your personality may well lend it. So let's say you have very low emotional intelligence, then sitting and working in a silent library might be perfectly good for you, and there's nothing wrong with that. You know, if you're allowed to not interact with people... And if you feel comfortable doing that, you can. If you're required or you've been silly enough to go into dentistry, you are almost required for your own well being to enhance your emotional intelligence. So, to get it better, first of all, everyone could get it better. And no matter how good people think you are or are not, there's room for improvement on everyone. So, we're all on that, that pathway. And we can all have joint humility with that. The difficulty with it that I've experienced. Um, which is pretty well documented by other people involved in the area, is it is just like physical training. So if you sitting there now said, right, I have to put on 20 kilos of lean muscle mass, you're going to feel some pain. And with emotion intelligence, you're going to feel pain as well. The difference is, well, well it's not that different, so I suppose it's the same. You choose to go to the gym and inflict the pain on yourself. You choose to do the reps. With emotion intelligence, you have to invite it in as well. It can't be taught to you unbidden. So th- this is, this is the thing that you know, blows my mind every time I say it. So it's going to blow my mind again now, but <laughs> if, if you can, uh, if you choose to stress yourself with something emotional intelligent. So let's, let's use an, uh, an example. Let's say we have someone who says, I really don't like public speaking, even to the point that at practice meetings, I'm not getting my message across. And I, I'm scared of speaking and I. Have a quiet word with the principal when there are no witnesses or anyone around, you're less effective. So, to choose to stress yourself, if you choose to do it, you have to make that choice and you go into it. Because you chose to stress yourself, it actually codes for new DNA in your brain and it codes for new proteins and you grow new synapses in your brain. So, this has again been proven with loads of different functional MRI studies. But literally, if you choose to stress yourself with emotional intelligence training, you grow new, dormant, but they're there in everyone. But dormant synaptic connections in your brain, those circuits grow and they get better and better and better and better. So you can enhance genuinely the anatomy in your brain. You grow new protein structures in your brain and you can then just deploy them because they stay. If you don't use them, they atrophy. So if people are too scared of the pain or too unwilling to embrace that, that self-induced stress, then they don't get that opportunity. So we can run courses on emotional intelligence, but that doesn't mean someone is inviting the stress. Um, and we have occasionally, or when we've done training like this, said to people, you know, perhaps people who can't even hold eye contact, particularly holding eye contact if I lean in and shake your hand and we'll have a two-minute conversation with no looking away, people can't do it. Um, But if they choose to keep going, keep going, keep going, literally you watch these structures grow as it's happening. Sweat pouring, um, and then it grows. And then an hour later, they come to do the same, and they can look me in the eye and say, hi, Rich, how are you? And do you know I love that. I love that. That's amazing. Because there's your warmth. It it is. Mm -hmm. The neuroplasticity is fast. I mean, your brain is so adaptive, but I love it.
1: I I really like the way that you liken everything to actually what's happening inside the the biology, inside the anatomy of the brain. I I once read a book called Quiet. It's about introverts. Have have you read Quiet? Yeah, I have. So the introverts have a larger uh, amygdala. Uh, and that's yeah. why they're so good they're at, at sensing everything. Uh, and and I, I believe it was that book, or maybe another book, where it talked about how we all have these synaptic connections, obviously. But then, uh, if we liken, for example, your public speaking synapse to be a, yeah. a narrow country lane versus a large motorway, it depends on how much you 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 nourish uh, nourish it, how much you practice, you have, how much like Absolutely. just like you said, how much you open and welcome yourself to it. So, what are the I mean, you've given a great idea of how one can go about improving their emotional intelligence. Yeah. But before one can do that, they actually need to have a act of self discovery to, to know, okay, yeah, you know, someone may not know exactly where they where they might, might lie. So I believe there are some helpful aids out there to maybe, yeah. you know, a questionnaire or something more complex than that, to find out exactly exactly where you lie in the scale of emotional intelligence, what can we do for that?
0: Do you know that uh, I've been thinking about that a lot recently? Actually, it's almost like we scripted this interview, Chaz, But we we haven't, you know, <laughs> tell the speakers we haven't. But that is, you know, you really are hitting the questions on point. So, so what we're talking about there is like a, an immediate personality assessment of where I am. So if we started with the first scientific bit, that that's my self awareness. Uh, who are we? And there's lots of personality tests. So if you look in business, you go up to Goldman Sachs. They're all doing DISC. People may have heard of DISC, D-I-S-C. Uh, for, for their personality assessments, or they might do something called the Myers Briggs. Um, those Myers Briggs disc type assessments, they tend to come with a little bit of a label. Um, so they are, an, a label can then stick with you and limit your growth. So we don't really use those in, in a scientific way. They're good and they're popular because they give you a sense of self identity. So, you know, on my Myers Briggs, I'm an ENTJ. But the flaws with that are the E is extrovert, but that's not a dichotomous situation. No one is 100% extrovert. In fact, if you are, you're probably you know, in prison. And if you're 100% introvert, then so everybody is an ambivert, but you might just lean one way or the other. So the, the more scientific test that I encourage our delegates to do is, um, the, is something called the Big Five, the Big Five Ocean Assessment. And that is the one that all scientific psychological literature is based on. Um, So you have five big components to it. Your openness, conscientiousness, extroversion, um, agreeableness, and neuroticism. And then there are subsets within those. And it's very interesting when people do that with us, because they will come back and do a scientific test, but then say, I agree with this bit, but I don't agree with that bit. And you think, well, you... In science, you don't get to agree with that <laughs> bit. And then just, you know, you just don't like that. Um, yeah. So for example, on my ocean score, my neuroticism is 9%. So I am, okay. I'm, I'm hyper low neurotic, which, which isn't a bad thing. It's just a thing. Yeah. But it means that if I'm going to run a business, I really need to work with someone who's really highly neurotic. Because, <laughs> because I, I'll just turn up and wing it. And, um, and that they will be much more structured to it. And actually... You know, it's not a weakness in me. It's just a thing in me. Mm-hmm. Um, you can work out where you are. So we encourage people, if you're going to start to, uh, to do your ocean assessment, um, the best ocean assessment online, I, you know, I'm not advertising this. This is not, it, um, it's nothing that I have any financial interest in, but the best one I use is something called Understand Myself. Understandmyself.com. And uh, it's an American setup. You, you pay mm-hmm. a mm-hmm. few dollars and you get a full report. And, you know, be ready. Be ready because the stress is coming. You know, none
1: of yeah. us are perfect, and yeah.
0: uh, I, I, you know I'm happy to list all my scores. I did it on a webinar not long ago. But, you know, it makes it interesting reading.
1: It's, it's it's great, and I I like how you mentioned about the your nine percent neuroticism, and you you mentioned about running a business there, which which I want to just lead on to the next question quite nicely actually. So yeah. running a business, and you want to team up with someone who maybe uh, has a higher score to 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 get reach some sort of balance. But dent dentists and dental practices they work with people, they work with teams. So mm. one of the things I've learned through attending these uh, dental sales type courses, you know, yeah. that sort of stuff. And what they say is, you know, the most important thing is the person who answers your phone, your phone, the reception team are are, are the sort of gateway for revenue into your yeah. practice. And yeah. so I think the most important thing to do is that if you're gonna train yourself and you're gonna improve as part of, you know, having a more successful business is that it will be silly to just focus on your own emotional intelligence. It will be a great thing to, to introduce the team to this concept and, and yeah. get your receptionist, your practice manager, the decision makers in your practice to also uh, learn about and improve their emotion intelligence, because surely that will mean uh, so much more for a business, for a practice. Um, is that something that you uh, talk about?
0: Yeah, ab- absolutely. And you're quite right, you're quite right. So. We know that um, when, when someone walks into any sort of business, any sort of you know, a hotel lobby or a dental practice or, or wherever it may be, when they meet you and they meet the first person there, it really is the first 15 seconds. And that, that study has been taken to the point where they, they've taken medics um, and medics interacting with patients on video, with video and audio, and then uh, they've been watched by a group of lay people judging the medic. And then subtracting the time so they have less chance to observe this interaction. And what they're doing is making a judgment call on whether this dentist, this doctor is going to be sued, going to be successful, going to be liked. And audiences are incredibly perceptive over this. You know, they they just feel it. That's all emotional intelligence. We have no idea about this guy's IQ, it's just his warmth and competence. And then they cut the sound down uh, and the time down. And it ended up with silent 15 minute videos. And the audience still got it always right. So, yeah. so that moment now in your receptionist answering the phone, they haven't got body language, they haven't got eye to eye contact, they have that boom. So everything then comes the phone. But interestingly, if you look at um lectures delivered through an audio device, if the speaker is standing up and moving around as they do it, and when they say hello to the audience, actually put the hand out, they can't be seen, but they do it the audience rate that performance much, much higher. So so even though your reception staff are limited by audio, I'm not saying they need to walk around and practice and check out (laughs) people, but but, but having them skilled up in just presenting uh, a warm, kind, uh, immediate point of contact is important. We know what patients want from that. Patients want to feel wanted, they want to feel liked, and they want to feel known. Now, they're probably not going to go through the known bit um, until they meet you or your nurse and get into the clinical environment. But certainly when they come to your, your reception staff, they need to feel wanted and they want to feel liked. They need to feel those two things. So it's wanted, liked and known. Those are the big ones.
1: So how can we get the, our teams to also... Because it's one of those things where if, you're, um, if you own a practice and then you tell your team... Uh, you know we need to be hot on emotional intelligence let's yeah. all improve our emotional intelligence then they, you know they might listen they might not but if someone external sometimes comes then they're you know even though they're saying the same message they, it might resonate with them more it's one of those things so do we need to be yes. getting some uh, emotional intelligence consultants to the practice to, to to help improve or is this something that we can start to introduce to our practices
0: yeah i, I mean i think the training can come from anywhere and, and you know i don't mind if it comes from external sources or internal you know and if you've got Enough structure to do it for people yourself. By all mean, you know that, that I think that's a great thing as well. Learning is learning, and it's valid um, wherever it comes from. So, so I, you know, I have no issue with who, who does that. But definitely, skilling up your team. It, you know, one of the key things um, through anecdote and science is that our uh, patients judge your relationship with you and your nurse massively. You know how you interact with people is something their subconscious mind observes. If you think of um, all, all humans have a conscious and a subconscious mind, and communication like you and I are doing now, we're just giving each other access to our minds. So that's all we're doing. You're giving me access to your mind, I'm giving you access to mine, and, and, our, and your listeners will be doing the same. And All we're doing is judging each other's minds, and, but it's, it's your mind and how it relates with other people. So If you have a good, friendly, enjoyable, positive, mutually positive relationship with your nurse, Patients feel that energy and they, they like it and judge you positively because of it as well. Same with your reception stuff. It's so a whole team training, I think, is, is a vital part of it. You know, if I have uh, a delegate in trouble and, or not, not in trouble, but just saying I'm finding work difficult, we will always say to them, what's your relationship like with the nurse? And they go, oh, Jenna, you know, it's really difficult. They don't want to be there and they're bitter and twisted or, you know, it's very, very hard. And that means you're walking into the room every single day Having to pour positive energy, not just into your patient, but into the staff around you as well. Very, very difficult to do.
1: Extremely draining, extremely draining. Yeah, it really is. So the last question I had was, I I know we sort of um, picked off from where you're talking and uh, some tangents to get where we are. One question I, I sort of missed out was, can you just make the emotional intelligence for anyone who hasn't quite got it yet, extremely tangible in the sense that let's say, dentist listening to this and we have an p- unhappy patient, someone who complains. Yep. How yep. might someone demonstrate or someone who has low emotional intelligence behave and what what might they feel versus uh, someone who has high EQ? Can you, can you just explain maybe uh, yeah. how that scenario may be handled and why the role of mo- emotional intelligence may actually have a bearing on the outcome or how it's actually perceived and the emotions?
0: Do you, do you know, I think it's a, it's, it's a really good question again, Jason. one that warrants quite sort of expansive um, explanation. So, so if you were to look at like Dental Protection Society, and I said, this is how you handle complaints. If you have low EI, you will just naturally look at that and think, well, I've got the formula to follow. I just follow the recipe. All I have to do is A, B, C. It's a very linear process. If you have high EI, one, you probably haven't had the complaint in the first place, but two, when it comes in, or you feel it, you, you would have felt it coming on before it's even coming on. So we all have difficult patients, but firstly, you can spot them. Um, if you have low EI, you can, uh, high EI, you can anticipate where they're coming from. Um, because difficult people are often full of explanations over why they're di- you know, They don't know they're difficult, but they might tell you the, the, a lot about themselves if you ask. And you just have the ability to um, unpack their mind and understand their mind and then empathize with their mind, give their mind somewhere to land and make them feel wanted, even if they're not. Uh, Make them feel wanted and certainly make them feel known. And if that happens, then you really do just reduce the risk of a complaint massively. So in terms of a tangible example, I I, I spent a lot of my time in the hospital and we had a patient, this is a real life example, Who's someone who came in and checked in and the computer system tells us that they're here and for whatever reason it didn't work. So this patient arrives and sees another patient arrive and going before them, and another one going before them, and another one going before them. And they go up to the reception desk after an hour of waiting there very patiently. And I've now finished my clinic and I've got to go to a meeting. And the reception staff says, Well, you didn't turn up for your appointment on time. New reception staff, different one now. Says you didn't turn up for your appointment on time. And, and Dr. Porter's gone, and you'll be discharged. So the patient is now really, really angry. I get wind of it, of and course. then I see the patient. And so before you see the patient, if you, if you are able, which even look at you, Jazz, I think you'll be naturally just able to do it. You, you've got to be able to put yourself in that person's shoes, but not put their shoes in 60 minutes waiting, saw three patients. Put your shoes into how they are feeling, and as they walk in the room, act appropriately, contextually, to someone who's he's, he's feeling anger, but has justified anger, is probably feeling a little let down, is probably feeling they had some concerns they needed to discuss with a consultant and now has been told they can't have it, maybe feeling betrayed by the system, maybe they had a bad day yesterday as well, they might be feeling sad, and they might be, you know. And if you could do all of that when they come in and you hit them, with your warmth and your competence, and you look them in the eye and say, I, I found out what happened to you. You know, I'm just so sorry that happened to you. And we can talk about that. But once we've talked about that, now or later, I can do everything I can to make it right for you and help you as much as I can with the problem you want to talk to me about. Immediately, the situation is improved. Now, we have delegates who say, But how did you know how to say that? And I say, Because you know, if you don't know, if it's not given to you, you're going to practice. So say it back to me now. I'm not asking you just now, but we will say, I say, say it back to me now. And we role play. And people say, I can't role play. I can't, I'm not going to role play. That's Well, you are. I'm your angry patient, <laughs> right? The rest of you 20, you're watching. I'm the angry patient role play with me. And they get really uncomfortable and then they do it. And then it comes along. And you know, the, the, the feedback we get uh, is, is from people who go through that process is the one that this changed my career. You know, you you literally neuroplasticize people then and there, all through a more structured program, and then they can handle those complaints better. I hope that answers the question. It does, fantastic. Eat, or-
1: it really, it really does. Uh, so so I, I love these uh, real life examples that we face. You know, very similar sort of circumstances day in day out in our, in our roles. Yeah. So I really appreciate that. So uh, th- those are the main questions I wanted to cover today, because obviously we can talk about this for days and days and days. Yeah. So those are uh, to give those listening a flavour. Those who may be unfamiliar with EI, now they know what it is and how they can improve it. The fact that you know it's something that you can work on, but it requires you to yeah. come out your comfort zone. Uh, we touched uh, on a few interesting things about uh, your personality and luck at the beginning which i, I quite enjoyed and actually yeah. one thing i was going to save to now should we have enough time and we just got a couple of minutes here is have you heard of the uh, i'm probably saying this name wrong in new zealand dunedin dunedin
0: yeah, yeah. have you heard I of the, the dunedin place. studies i don't know them no
1: oh okay i'm Tell gonna me. send you something i'm gonna send you an email so i'm, I'm gonna send you a very special email uh, that will give you some access some uh, uh, some exclusive content, but like it, it is uh, it is, 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 is sort of like the study that you mentioned. Uh, I believe you said it was in, in in London where they follow people up from from birth to uh, it's later the Har- on in it's
0: life. Harvard happiness, Harvard happiness Study,
1: right? Right. So okay. Ha- so
0: Harvard, yeah, Harvard. It's okay.
1: Out. Well, uh, yeah. from from what I've read and what I've seen, the Dunedin Study is is the world leader of all those types. So when as soon as a child is born in the hospital in Dunedin, then they are followed up every so months, and they look at every facet of their development, every Amazing. part of uh, what makes them who they are, the relationship okay. with their mother, their their temperature when they're born, like various different things, Then they measure them, and they measure them, and they measure them, and then they yeah. see who turns up in, 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 into prison, who becomes successful, quote unquote, who Amazing. um has thriving relationships. And I just I just one of my favorite studies and things to learn about is that and I think it was just sort of touched on that. So for those, you know, uh, every episode, I like to put some resources for people to look on So I'm gonna send that to you. But I'm also open up to everyone. Uh, I'll put I'll find something and put it on for about the Harvard study that you uh, said as well. Yeah, and, 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 and,
0: and, yeah. and I can send plenty more to you to put up. Well, you know, we're now that'd looking great. at quality of life and lifespan based on personalities. It's, um, it's, and there's a difference. You know, happy that, people live longer.
1: Mm, mm, brilliant. Yeah. And yeah, Any last points that you want to, to, to leave us with, Richard, at all? Uh,
0: just, just in terms of um, everyone's going back to work now. This is a time to rebuild. This is the best, you know, this is a transitional time. This is the time to build on this. Um, and one of the things we help people do, or, or willing to help anyone do, not just Aspire Delegates, anyone at all, is, is become that version of themselves in the future. So, so to do that, we, we, you know, we know how to do that. About setting goals, about enjoying the process along those goals, and how you actually structure that into place. Um, You know that that's something we would encourage anyone to do. Don't just become a dentist who follows a label, goes in, fixes teeth, goes home, does a different role at home. Next day, same. That routine cycle is for many of us a dead end. We know dentists are struggling with stress, burnout, anxiety, and depression. This this is the way. It's it's future authoring. You author author who you want to be and and go along that process. And EI is the, the the fundamental engine of that.
1: Brilliant. Well, thank you so much, Richard. And please do send me some uh, links, resources. Um, I, w- I, w- I want to know about anything that you guys are putting on for this, as well as the ocean, okay. sort of uh, everything on. I want to put it on a link so people can find out more awesome. about this because it's such an important topic.
0: Cheers. Cheers. Yeah. Well, well, that's great. I'll do all that.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Richard. Cheers. So I hope you enjoyed listening to that as much as I enjoyed chatting to Richard Porter. Thank you so much everyone for voting for this episode. So I sort of presented, I wanted you to have the choice which episode you want to listen to next. So the choices between emotional intelligence uh, or case acceptance and smile design. So the next episode will be case acceptance in smile design. And I'm not going to tell you who the guest is, but I've got someone who literally does the most big cases, smart design cases that I know, like right? personally, I know them. Um, and the amount of cases, the volume of smart design cases they do, they can obviously, speak to patients about this kind of dentistry and so many amazing gems we pick up so really excited for the next episode join us in around about a couple of weeks time a lot of you have forgotten that a lot of the content that uh, is, is here on audio to listen to is actually available uh, by video as well on the youtube channel or eventually on dental tubules if you want it enhanced cbd so thanks so much for sticking all the way to the end i really appreciate it uh, i'll catch you in the next episode guys goodbye <laughs>